Good evening, and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. I'm the host of Your Legal Rights, Jeff Hayden. Tonight, we present another installment of our popular feature, Landlord-Tenant Law. And once again, there are changes afoot in this very fast-changing area of law. A few months after the last city in the region ended its own eviction moratorium, has a rest of the courthouse emerged? What other changes are afoot? Last spring, we discussed AB 12, legislation that would significantly change what a landlord could charge for security deposit. Whatever happened with that bill? Most of the pandemic-inspired emergency measures are relegated to the history books. Yet there are permanent changes that have taken place. Has inflation for rental units eased? If a recession is on the way, how might this affect landlord-tenant relationships in light of any lingering pandemic measures? Are there developments in legislation on the horizon? As always, we want you, our most important guest, to join in the conversation, so give us a call. Our phone number is right here in the studio, 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. And bear in mind that our attorney guests are here to educate and inform. They can't provide specific legal advice for cases they haven't seen. But they're here to help, and they can give guidance as you try to sort out these legal principles and find a path for yourself. Returning tonight, our guests are three of the Bay Area's top landlord-tenant attorneys. Some 20 years, for some 20 years, Je- San Francisco landlord-tenant attorney Jessica Chalik represents clients in rent board actions, mediations, and court for landlord-tenant issues. Jessica launched her practice to specialize in San Francisco residential evictions, vacancy agreements, and rent board petitions for tenants, landlords, master tenants, and subtenants. Joining us tonight from San Mateo, attorney David Finkelstein is a graduate of NYU School of Law. David is admitted to practice in the states of California and New York, beginning his career as a staff attorney in California for the National Housing Law Project at Bolt Hall School of Law. And for the last 40 years and more, David has been representing clients in real estate and landlord-tenant matters. David recently wrote an article that was published on the issue of protection for renters during the COVID-19 crisis, and it was published in a recent issue of Apartment Owners News magazine. And also from San Francisco, attorney Sal Timpano is considered one of the top attorneys in the Bay Area to practice in the area of landlord-tenant law, representing both landlords and tenants in the area of eviction. And with that, Sal, David, Jessica, welcome to your legal rights. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be back. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be on. You know, one of the things we spoke of before was uh, a couple months ago, when last we were here, we talked about the status of AB 12, and of course, that was the legislation that spoke of how much a landlord can deposit as security. Do we know what the status is now and what the state of the law is now? 
Well, the le legislative an analysis online shows that it was uh, passed by both houses, state houses, and um, is sitting on the governor's desk. It was sent there on September 20th, and he has until October 15th to sign it or not. So right now, there's still a limit that's quite a bit higher for security. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. The current law is that a landlord can charge uh, two times the rent for an unfurnished apartment or three times the monthly rent for a furnished apartment. Um, but the new legislation limits the landlord to one month's rent as a security deposit. And we should know about that in about three weeks. Uh, hopefully, that won't take, that won't make landlords too squeamish for tenants that might otherwise be marginal. Might take mm, a chance you. if you got some money in the bank. Yeah, some of the difficulty is, is that, um, you know, if, if the tenant does stop paying rent, it takes, you know, some time to get the tenants out and landlords aren't collecting rent during that time. So, you know, they, they, they use the security deposit, not only for repairs, but also to pay the back rent during the time that the unlawful detainer is pending. Um, that's, that's one way that the security deposit is used. The most common way is when the tenants move out, the landlord account, you know, gives them an accounting of the security deposit. And most of the time, there's no problems. If there are problems in that scenario, they probably end up in small claims court. Um, but it's 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 um, it's when they're having uh, you know problems paying the rent that then the security deposit could could become an issue for the landlord. Um, in my experience, it's rarely that the damage you know that a tenant leaves and the damage is you know beyond the security deposit. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I don't anticipate there'll be a lot of problems in that regard, but I don't know. Well, except I, I've had a lot of cases where the tenants leave and they want to make sure they get back their security deposits so they don't pay the last month's rent, even though that's not legal, but they still do it. Yeah, David, I've had that experience as well. And, you know, the landlord's recourse at that point is to, to sue, um, but Typically, they don't know where the tenants went and they just, yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, that's what's on the landlord's minds with the security deposit, I think, is, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, and with rents in San Francisco being so much higher than you would think, given the national levels, um, th th it, I can understand that it's a uh, a bit of a problem for landlords, you know, especially if somebody's low lower income but doesn't qualify for like a, a Section Eight HUD voucher, you know, that would cover at least two thirds of their rent. So, you know, if it's an average person with an average job, it, it, a lot of people are renting out rooms because, you know, they they can't afford to pay two or three months' rent as a security deposit, as well as, you know, mo um, moving, moving fees and application fees and things like that. 
Yeah, I mean, in a way, I you know, it looks to me like in a large way that the legislation is like a Band-Aid on a on a on a you know huge wound because you know to if rents are so high that the tenant you know potential tenants can't afford two months of rent for security deposit there's a big problem and it's like being fixed in in a like not a very good way you know there's something else i mean it just seems like they're they're going to be set up to not be able to pay the rent if the rent's so high that double the rent isn't available for security deposit, I to me it looks like they're just going to have a hard time paying the rent. And I, I, you know, making it easy to get in, just I mean, it just might cause more problems later because they, they they can't afford to live in the place. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It just it doesn't look like good legislation to me for that reason. I mean, I I'm all for moving in with less money, but it just. It just seems like they're just setting up for trouble. That's what it looks like to me. Let me turn it over to Sam from San Francisco. You're on the air. Welcome to your legal rights. Hi, yes. Thanks for this wonderful show. I am the master tenant in a non-rent control unit in San Francisco, and I had a subtenant, and we are both low income. A subtenant who was not paying rent for like seven, eight months, finally uh, filed for eviction with the help of Access Center and before the trial date, um, the subtenant agreed to a settlement of paying a nominal amount like one month's worth of rent and leaving uh, on a certain date. Um, On that date, at the same time, um, I went and asked for the money and they just, you know, um, just shouted obscenities and um, flipped and uh, got into the car and left. Um, when I went in, there was a lot of damage in the unit, and they had left some personal clothes and small equipment. Um, I called the police, and the subtenant came back to enter, and the police did not let them enter because the court had endorsed the agreement that they were to leave at a certain time. So I did not get the money at all, and I have a lot of damages. What do I do now? I went to the court and they can't help. Uh, it, no. it sound, did did the the tenant moved out? The subtenant yeah. moved out. Yes. The subtenant moved out without a court order. They just agreed to move out. No, the the during the settlement conference they had come to an agreement, which was you know filed with the court that okay. they were going to move out on a certain day, certain time, and pay a certain amount. So they moved out, but they didn't pay. Right. And damage a lot. And there's more damage on top of that. You mentioned mentioned that they're both, that, you know, the subtenant was low income as well. I mean, you have potentially a claim against them for that money that you were awarded in the settlement agreement and for the damages afterward. But the problem is going to be collecting it. Because if they're low income, they're going to, you know, the courts allow you to have money to live, you know, to pay rent, to buy food, to travel for jobs or whatever. Um, so, you know, it's it's not like medieval times when they would just take your last penny. Right. But I don't have money either. I didn't get rent for like eight months. 
What yeah, was that last tough. part about eight months? He didn't get rent for eight months from okay, the subtenant. So got it. Got it. Um, yeah, and I understand that you're low income as well, and that's a very difficult situation to be in. But at least now you've got a room that, you know, hopefully you can do some repairs to and re-rent at, to somebody who will pay. Yes, and what do I do about the property that they came back to claim and the police did not allow them? Can I throw it away? No, no. Uh, it depends. Uh, you have to send them a notice of abandonment and give them 18 days to uh, claim it. Uh, and um, if it's worth less than, I believe, $700, which probably is worth less than $700 uh, uh, or else uh, if they want it, uh, I believe they're required to uh, pay you a per diem storage charge from, from they weren't evicted though. They just left, huh? Well, it was a settlement agreement that they left under. It was a court endorsed settlement agreement with a vacant date. And David, they might have to, he might be under that rule that he's got to do an auction to get rid of the stuff. If it's worth more than $700. You're right. If it's it worth not. more than 700 if it's not, then it's it's what you're getting to. Um, I, I think that's probably right. It's a, it's a tough so situation to be in. And, you know, I'm sorry that you're there. But um, I, I don't know that you have much recourse against him that's going to be effective. You could get pieces of paper that say he owes you money from the court. But it, the question about how whether you would be able to collect it would, would is, is an entirely different question. He may be mm-hmm. what's called judgment proof. But I think from and the I- day that he left or that under the court order he was supposed to leave until he reclaims the property – you're entitled to. You're not entitled to ask for the back rent that he hasn't paid you, but you're entitled to ask for per diem for storage. And uh, what, what date was he supposed to have left? Uh, like fifteen days ago. Fifteen. So you could ask for fifteen. That's a half a month's rent. So you could tell him, "I'll give you back this uh, your stuff. Give me." Uh, so storage for 15 days at the uh, rental rate for 50, give me a half a month's rent and uh, you can take your stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm worried that he will not pay and there will be violence if they come back to the unit. So that's also a concern. And, but, it's not, yeah. not a beautiful situation to be in, but I mean... If he says he's coming over at a certain time, you could ask for a police presence to be there when he comes. To keep the violence down, yeah. That would be a good idea. There's, something, also- that, there's something we use, in, not in this context, but where you call the police for what's called a civil standby. And that's yes. for them to come and stand by when someone's retrieving property. We use it in restraining order cases and domestic violence cases as well. Seems that's to me that right. if, you, if you use those words, you might get them to join you. I will yeah, try, so, but they yeah. sometimes don't respond to nine one one call for two hours. So I will. Well, no, you try. would call. You wouldn't. You wouldn't call nine one one. You would call the regular police non emergency number yeah, and make arrangements for somebody to be on a civil standby for the time that the subtenant comes back to get their stuff. It's In it's the, not uh, a nine one one call. 
And the other thing you would do is you would put the items outside. You don't have to let them inside to get the mm-hmm. to get the belongings. You can put them outside. So maybe have them ready to go, and you know, make sure he's coming by. Otherwise, you got to put him back inside because you yeah, can't like in the in the apartment in the apartment building hallway or something like that, where it's still safe from being stolen. Um, you know, don't leave it out on the front porch. We all know about porch pirates. Yeah. yeah, I cannot. It's not that kind of an area. But, yeah, I'm also worried that he'll make a claim that I didn't return everything, even though I will, you know, do so. So I'm just worried that one thing leads to the other. Sam, there's a couple but, of things you can do. One of them is whether you have the police there or not, don't do it alone. Have somebody there with you. Have it documented. Have a list of all the stuff. And if this guy won't sign it, at least your witness can vouch for that yeah and you you know cell phone recordings you know if if anybody has a cell phone cell phone recordings as long as you tell the guy i'm recording this interaction and if you ask him for 15 days of rent ask him to pay it to you in cash uh because (laughs) most likely that his check will not clear (laughs) yeah but but that said even if you don't get the rent get his stuff out of there Get him out of your life. Life's too short. Sam, I wish you the best. I hope we've been of help. Thank you. Yes, certainly. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great night and best of luck to you. And let me turn it to Janet from San Mateo. Janet, welcome to your legal rights. Thank you. Janet, you're live on the air. What can we do for you tonight? So I had a question about uh, a tenant, apartment building, violating the quiet enjoyment uh, aspect of the lease for the other tenants. Um, A lot of police activity um, and that kind of thing in the unit or, you know, coming to the unit for things that go on and also an unauthorized tenant who lives there, who is, you know, the contributor and the cause for that kind of police contact where the other tenants are very concerned and there's that going on. And, me, you know, what are the rights of a landlord in that situation? Let me fill that in a little better because I think there's some holes in it. See if I understand you right. What you're you're asking about the landlord's rights vis-a-vis the tenant when there's an additional person staying there who doesn't belong, maybe not authorized by the lease or at least not on the lease, and that other person has been a nuisance and brought the police around for various reasons. Do Correct. I, do I have that right? Okay. Yep. So... I'll turn it over to my guest. What What do you recommend? What can the landlord do in that situation? Ultimately, Jeff, uh, the landlord can send uh, an eviction notice for nuisance emanating from that unit to the tenant. Um, and, you know, before that, they can just send a warning letter if they want to, you know, to avoid litigation. But if, if, uh, if you don't want to do that, just send an eviction notice uh, you know, for nuisance, for the noise, and have a witness ready to go for, you know, once the case is filed, you'll need witnesses to support what's in the notice. You won't necessarily put the name of the witness in the notice, just the conduct, but at some point that notice will have to be supported, um, you know, with a witness. Yeah, that's the, that's the problem. Uh, so uh, uh, I've done a lot of these nuisance notices, and I've even gone to trial on them. Uh, but you have to have, uh, Sal said, a live witness willing to testify. 
and and sometimes um, unfortunately the attorney will give the notice without knowing who the witness is and then finds out when he's going to go to trial that the, the tenant who was complaining about it doesn't want to be named and doesn't want to show up and is afraid. And the, and the manager, I even had a case where the manager's afraid. And, you know, so you've got to have those things lined up because the what landlord if, can't what do if, it without a witness. What if there's been documented police incident reports? That doesn't you matter. Explain? You've got to have a witness, a live witness. Ah, okay. A witness. And then it's called a, a nuisance eviction. Yes. Okay. One of the witnesses might be the police officer, and you could subpoena the attorney. But it's it's better to also have either the manager say, "I had to call the police," or uh, they were were getting calls from other tenants like every night. Yeah. So the manager would be okay if the manager's willing to do it, plus the police officer who served the notice. Okay, you have to have a police officer to serve the notice of the eviction, or no, no, to, the the police officer who came out to the calls, right? Yeah. I see. Okay, I see. Okay, well, there's plenty of those people. It's just a question of making, you know, ensuring that they're going to be cooperative, right? Okay, and that's that's always the thing is because um, you know people get afraid of folks who are who yeah. are. No nuisances, and it can be a problem. And I also have had people duck out on me at the last minute, you know, where it's right. like, yeah, I'll, I'll sign the declaration and I'll say that I'll be able to go to court that day and everything. But the day yeah. of when I call them to say, okay, I need you to be at the courthouse at nine o'clock, they're yeah. like, yeah, no, I'm not coming. Hey, Janet, right. l- Janet, let me ask you just from my own practice, which is far, far from landlord tenant, but you mentioned the police coming out multiple times. Did they actually remove this nurse nuisance person from the premises ever? Um, yes, on two occasions. Is it the, domestic it, violence? Are they getting removed for that or for noise? Uh, domestic violence. So no. the person being removed is the unauthorized tenant, which there was a warning for that on you know three two months ago, and also a warning that. You know, the noise level, we're getting a lot of complaints. People are concerned for your safety, that kind of stuff. And then um, it just continues and it's getting worse, you know. And the thing is, is like, I feel one of the tenants might even want to move out. And so something needs to happen. Sounds like the likelihood of that tenant coming and joining you in court may have gotten a little better if this other person is out of there. Well, right. But yeah, the person was removed. If you had a consultation with a, an eviction lawyer, um, you know, and you were able to go to that that tenant who's complaining and and is you know on borderline of moving out and saying, okay, look, I've had a consultation with a you know an eviction lawyer mm-hmm. and who's willing to take my case, and but we really need to have you hang around through this, but you know, hopefully we can get this guy gone. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just as a it's, a, it's the, the setup, the geography or the setup of the apartments is there's a shared driveway between one apartment building and the other apartment building. The, the majority of the complaints are coming from the apartment building across, but you, it's so close. There's like a narrow driveway connecting both of them. They're also witnesses, too, even though they're not tenants of mine. 
that well, I mean, there's Those nothing that's good witnesses uh, too. Yeah, there's nothing that yeah, says okay. that a, you or a, a, an eviction attorney can't contact them and say, "Look, uh, I need I, I'm the landlord in the other building. I know he's there's a problem person there. I'm working on trying to get them out, but I need to have people who are going to commit to helping me." Uh-huh. Yeah, right. so that everybody okay. can sleep. But okay, so yeah, I didn't know it, it's not just as I well because you know that when they sign the covenants of the lease, it's quiet enjoyment, but it's technically a nuisance. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if it's disturbing people in the next building, no matter oh, how close oh it is. Yeah, it's that it's that loud and that crazy. Yeah. Okay, and you know people are concerned. They hear a woman screaming. I mean that can't be fun. And, you know, that's not something you want to hear. No. No. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. I think that that, that certainly helps me uh, with the wording of it. It, it, It's a nuisance. I didn't think of it that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Jenna, thanks for... And is it a 30-day notice, or what is the notice with respect to that? Once you tell somebody... It's a three-day notice. It's three days. Three. Three. Not 30. Three. Holy. I didn't even think of that. Wow. Okay. Right, provide, but you have to have written at least one warning letter saying, you know, this this has to knock off. Oh, no, yeah, there was uh, there was one warning letter. There was two warning letters, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It sounds to me like you might be in a pretty good position. I would have, I would call your local lawyer referral mm-hmm. service and get a, a consultation with an eviction attorney. Mm-hmm. Got it. Or you know the okay. three people on the air with us tonight, any one of which would be happy to help. Give okay. a call. For sure, for sure. All right, thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Jenna, thank you for joining us in Your Legal Rights. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. So what is the status of the landlord-tenant relationship? Am I still protected from eviction? Do I have to pay my tenants to move? Are there now limits to a security deposit? Is it retroactive? Tonight's guests... David Finkelstein, Sal Timpano, and Jessica Chalik are among the best landlord-tenant attorneys in the region. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic. We're talking landlord-tenant. You're not limited to the point we may be in our conversation. We did get a question from a listener who didn't want to stay on the line. But this listener asks, what's the statute of limitations for recovering a security deposit? It's been over a year, and the landlord has provided no money nor an accounting. Huh. Well, the statute of limitations for an oral contract is two years. And if it's a written contract, it's four years. And if it's under 10000 they bring their claim in small claims court. Right. Yeah. And so it, it, it is possible to have a, an oral rental agreement uh, in California. And so if you don't have anything written down, you have two years from the day that they should have provided the security deposit or accounting, which is 21 calendar days after you vacated the unit and returned all keys and access devices like garage door openers and things like that. Um, and then 
for a written contract, if you had a written lease or written rental agreement, then you have up to four years from the day they should have done that. However, I, I just put a caveat there on, uh, I would never tell a tenant to wait four years because there's a doctrine called laches, L-A-C-H-E-S, which means if the you, you didn't pursue it diligently and circumstances have caused like the landlord to completely change the unit over and, uh, and so it doesn't even look like what it was when the tenant left and that could be used to argue that the landlord has been put at a severe disadvantage because the tenant waited four years. Uh, and maybe yeah. the landlord has had several tenants after that. Oh, we're not recommending that anybody wait those four years. Um, it's actually better to go as, as quickly as possible once you recognize the situation. You know, the 22nd day, if you will. But even with um, it being one year now, if you were to file your small claims lawsuit any time in the next, you know, couple of weeks or, or a month, it would still be pretty timely. Yeah, I would say within one year is what I would recommend, even though the law might allow four years. Bottom line is, you're still okay. You got the time. Jump on it. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, San Francisco Bay Area, and we'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's lawyer referral service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Let me turn it over to John from San Francisco. John, welcome to Your Legal Rights. Oh, hello. Thank you. Um, so I have a tenant who who's living in a in a in a house that I own, and um, you know, I, I I start we started off as as him staying there as a friend, and he was paying a, a pretty low rent, and he he has the whole house, and uh, now I actually want to raise the rent on him. And um, I wanted to find out what what's the you know, how much I could raise it by because it's a very low rent that he has right now. It's not really market rate. It's an extremely low rent for a house. And um, you know, my initial uh, thought was I was going to move into that house, but but now now I don't think I'm going to move in there. Mm-hmm. Where's the house located? It's in um, uh, the San Jose area. San Jose. And when did yep. he move in? He moved in in 2020. Written lease? No, no lease. Oral? Yes, oral. Well, actually, not really. Yeah, I guess we, we didn't really discuss a, a lease at all. He was just staying there. Yeah, I mean, if he's staying there and he's paying, then you've got an oral arrangement. That's it. Or, yep. you know, an arrangement that can be said orally by describing the performance. He pays yep. this much at that time. That's the lease. And uh, do you have any writings that you exchanged with him about this uh, arrangement at all? Emails, texts, anything? Yeah, we have some texts, but we haven't really outlined the agreement in there. And I still pay some of the bills because he he initially was a roommate, so to speak. Got so it. so um, I, uh, I still you know, pay I'll, bills. I get it. So I, I think, you know, and my colleagues will weigh in on this as well, but... Uh, 
I think you are in the uh, state law range of 5% plus another 5 if you qualify, you know, for a maximum cap of 10%. I think that's where you are. Well, wait, he might be exempt. It's a single single family house? Yeah, he is. Wouldn't he be exempt? Yeah. He was supposed to have given notice that he's exempt. Uh, and he, I don't think he did, though, David, because he said that uh, he's just had a couple of text messages. I don't, I didn't hear anything that sounded like it. Right. But anyway, I, I didn't want to butt in, David. Yeah, but uh, technically, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, you had to have given uh, notice that it's exempt from the statewide rent control act, uh, and you didn't. So, that... so it's yeah, it's within the rent, the statewide rent control act because you didn't give that notice. Gotcha. Have either of you, Jessica or David, heard of of anyone uh, landlords being able to give notice, like you know, for a tenancy that existed in you know since say before the TPA, the Tenant Protection Act came in, and they gave late notice? Like, you know, have you heard of that at all? I, I have not. I, I I have heard of it. I've done it, especially um, not to raise rents above the limits, but to uh, to ask for uh, a 60-day uh, eviction. And I usually put in the 60 days that it's a single-family house that's exempt from rent control, uh, even if it was an oral agreement and the, and the tenant's been living there for more than a year. Uh, and uh, so... I don't know. I, I don't know if there's any case law on it, but I have done it, and uh, it, it's worked for me. I have not suggested it in terms of getting above the uh, 5% plus the CPI. I have not suggested that to anybody to to increase the rent beyond that uh, based on, on a, non, uh, a non-given exemption. But I have done it with a 60-day notice. Yeah. Uh, you have to be careful um, because there's always, when you do things as a landlord, um, there's always the idea of fair of, of good faith and fair dealing. And so one of the things that you have to be careful of is that if you remedy the lack of the notice of exemption by giving the notice now, you should wait at least six months, if not the full year before you do any kind of rent increase, because you don't want it to come too close on the heels of that exemption notice because it will look, it will look bad. It'll I, I, look like bad I, haven't, I haven't done that. I've only used it uh, where they like the tenant wants to sell the property, wants to do something else. And, uh, and we yeah. give 60 day notice. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it come past me um and i'm not familiar with anything that has litigated whether you can remedy that notice it should have been given in in like 2020 or 2021 um but i don't think that um yeah i don't think there's any litigation that has determined whether that late kind of remedy is gonna work and or fly so it's it's still up in the air whether that will, whether a landlord can actually serve late, serve the notice of exemption and still rely on it. So, you know, so, we're, we're, 
Yeah. Is it your position, Sal, that, I mean, there's got to be tens of thousands of landlords who own <laughs> single family homes who haven't given the notice um, that they're all sort of, that's too bad. They're all under the statewide rent control. So what I, what I do to answer that, David, what, I, what I, I've done it a lot already is if I, if I get that kind of situation where a landlord comes to me and tells me they got a single family home, I tell them, send out the notice right now. You have no reason that's, to that's report right. it. Send it out right now because when the legislation came out, nobody gave those landlords notice about that notice requirement. You know, it, it just was buried in there somewhere towards the last right. third. Well, and then and then also then right after its implementation, the COVID pandemic hit and and everything went, you know, right. sideways and haywire with that. It was just un, it seems to me that the argument there is, look, this is just unfair. You know, it's just unfair to put that notice requirement on the landlord when they really had no opportunity to get notice of it. You know, and, and I read that over and over and over and I talked to lawyers about it. And we're still not agreeing on what it means. So, you know, there's still that going on. So I just my pretty much my knee jerk reaction is, oh, it's a single family home. You didn't send the notice. Send it now. And then I would probably kind of do what Jessica said is just send it now and forget you send it. Don't start doing all kinds of stuff. Just send it because right. I really don't know what's going to happen. You know, and, I, and I, I cover my butt with a nice CYA letter that says, you know, you might be late with this, but just send it out because right. you're not doing it's not an eviction notice. You know, it's yeah, not the, an, the majority of, of my clients are not big uh, corporations. They're mom and pop landlords who own a few single family houses. And usually one of them is the one they lived in until they retired and moved somewhere else. Uh, and uh, so they don't know. They weren't reading uh, the law every year as to what the new laws are. Right. Right. I just I I bet some of those problems, you know, when the landlords know they can raise the rent, that's when they don't want to raise the rent, especially the kind of people you're talking about. I have some clients like that. They just never raise the rent. And now they're they're finding out that, well, now there's restrictions. But, you know, they weren't operating like that because it was a single family home for many years. Jessica, you were going to say something. I was just saying that, you know, a lot of my landlord tenants are people who inherited, you know, the mom's house or dad's house or, you know grandma's house or something like that and they're renting it out because you know they have their own that they're living in well john i hope this has been of some help uh let me turn it over to brie from marin county brie welcome welcome to your legal rights hi hi thank you so much for taking my call um my call is about a resident uh that has recently not been able to care for themselves um, and is creating issues with neighbors in terms of, you know, um, letting water run and now there's leaks in other apartments, uh, start doing lighting fires, plastic goods, um, also audio onto the patio downstairs that are organic or from this person and um, this person is paying their rent through a trust, has a family member that is the power of attorney and this resident is refusing any kind of assistance uh, from anyone to come and help their home, which is to themselves, like glass. Um, So my question is, 
Do you have any advice about how to go about handling that type of situation? Is this an elderly person you're talking about, or is this just a younger person with a mental illness? Um, I, I would say not necessarily elderly, but in their 60s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does it okay. appear to you that they have signs of dementia or some form of mental illness? Not necessarily. That's just the thing. I, I think there might be some addiction involved or alcohol abuse. Um, because it, it varies, but the decline has recently in the last couple of days. The uh, 911 has been called twice. Um, the fire, the getting sick on the patio has all happened and really affecting the neighbors below. Are, are you are you the landlord or another tenant? No, I'm not the landlord or the tenant. Um, I am a property manager. Oh, okay. Um, but you, so you stand instead of the landlord. Well, you as the property manager should call the tr- contact the trustee because the trustee is going to be concerned about that person's health or should be. Um, I don't know if they have control over their finances or their person or both. But, um, you know, if they if they have a trustee, you know, there should be some conversation there about whether this person is is now no longer well enough to stay by themselves you know whether they can get in uh an in-home help person 24 hours or something like that to help you know keep them from you know fires and and things like that um if if none of that if you can't if the trustee isn't willing to talk try to talk through anything you might call a, the county adult protective services and see if there's something that you know they might have some ideas on yeah i yeah we i actually did and they came out today and i did speak to the trustee and there just doesn't seem to be any urgency and so my concern is both for the resident and for the neighbors um, because the the person that came out today basically said, you know, quote unquote, something is going to happen, which we already know. Um, but the, the, what they said to me was that if the resident is not allowing it to happen, nobody can force them to do it. So I guess my question is, do I really just need to wait for something to happen? Well, no, because I think you can still do a nuisance eviction like we talked about previously. You know, talk to okay. a, a, an eviction attorney in, you know, who practices in Marin or wherever the property is um, and uh, talk to them about a nuisance eviction or at least warning letters to the tenant and the uh, the trustee that if, if this behavior isn't controlled, then they're going to be evicted. Okay. And Jessica, and then, are so those without, warning? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask Jessica. Uh, are those warning letters required, in your opinion, or are they just a good um, a good set of background facts before the notice is served? In Marin, I don't know. I don't practice in Marin regularly, so I can't tell you that. I I, I like to send them. I don't think they're required. I don't think they're required in San Francisco, Marin, anywhere in the peninsula here. But I I. I do like the idea of sending them once or twice, you know, not too many, because if it's a nuisance, I I just don't have time to to let it turn into something. But I might send one or two, depending on the nuisance. And then the second or third communication would be a fiction notice. Yeah, you wanted to send it yourself. You could do it as a recap letter of the meeting today. You know, dear trustee and and tenant, uh, 
you know, okay. I was glad to meet with the trustee on such and so date. And we, you know, we talked about these things and how this is a problem. And, you know, the fact that the tenant is not cooperative in trying to resolve these situations. But, you know, we also discussed the fact that, you know, if this kind of behavior isn't controlled, we're going to have to, you know, but the other obtain possession of the property. <laughs> but the other thing that hasn't been mentioned is what alternatives Bree might have to try to resolve it short of eviction. Are there other alternatives out there? Could she somehow get the person into mediation? Or if they think that this tenant is periodically in a really bad way, maybe have the police come and do a welfare check. I mean, are these things advisable? Well, I thought she said that they've already had the police out several times, but, you know, and maybe an evaluation by a, a social worker or somebody from adult protective services might be appropriate. Um, yeah, they already, they did do an evaluation and this is kind of what I was really glad to hear that you were on the air talking about uh, landlord tenant because what my ideally would be if he, if this person could get someone in the home to help them, um, you know, person loves living there. We want to try to help him stay living there because he does pay his rent. However, it's creating problems that are now dangerous and no one seems to be able to, what was really useful about this, if I want to go back to the, um, to the uh, nuisance, uh, if, so yes, I definitely want to work with them, send letters. But what I'm hearing is that if that does not work, we can just do a three day. Right. But you'd have to make sure that the three day notice complied with state and local law. So I suggest talking to an attorney who practices in that county. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. If you, nuisance if, evictions I, are, are difficult. They're difficult evictions if they're not prepared right from the beginning. I mean, they're difficult just in general, but they need to they really need to be prepared correctly from the very beginning which is before the notice goes out and when the notice goes out. Everything else is going to hinge on that. That's the foundation. So if that's not really solid, then the whole thing is probably going to fall apart. And it's expensive. You know, it's, it's, it's expensive. You may not get an eviction out of a good, good notice, good set of facts, but you might get compliance. So that would be, you know, kind of a win too, but you might get nothing if the, if the, if the notice isn't, Right. Just- the, the, the problem with, you know, the quote problem with landlord tenant law is uh, what the notices have to be very, very specific and meet state and local requirements. You can't and just say if- he's causing a nuisance. You have to be specific about what he's doing. Yeah. In, in the in the three day notice that we're talking about, the letter can be, you know, the letter is not quite as specific, but. As far as a, a three-day notice, we strongly recommend that, for, especially for nuisance notices, but actually for anything, that you that you contact an eviction lawyer, somebody you could, who does that in the county. You could find one through the Bar Association of San Francisco Lawyer Referral Service. They also service Marin County and can help find you a lawyer up there. A short consultation for up to half an hour for a pretty minimal cost that might not be a bad idea. You can reach them at 415 989 1616. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the advice. I'm going to do some research and see what we could do to resolve the issue. Bree, thank you for joining us in your legal rights. 
Thank you. And let me turn it to Dan from Belmont. Dan, welcome to your legal rights. Thank you for having me. So I have an interesting situation here. Uh, for a couple months, I was living in an apartment down south in Southern California and uh, with my wife. My neighbor was a real weirdo. He'd sit inside all day smoking weed and would rarely come out. He'd be making weird noises, complain to the management on site. And uh, one night in the middle of the night, my wife gets up to go to the bathroom uh, she, you know, does her thing. And as she gets up to come back into the bedroom, she notices that there's a snake coiled up inside the bathroom. It's the neighbor's snake that somehow got out, scared the you-know-what out of her. Uh, she, she felt like she was trapped in the bathroom, didn't know uh, what to do. We called the fire department, had the fire department come out to remove the snake. And uh, a couple, we complained to management, and about a week or two later, uh, the gentleman had some type of mental health breakdown and uh, has left the apartment. Uh, the incident with the snake was particularly disturbing to my wife. She's scared to go back to the bathroom in the middle of the night. She's not comfortable in the apartment. We ended up uh, moving out of it. So my question to you and to your guests is this, you know, do I have potential causes of action for trespass, nuisance, negligent infliction of emotional distress against either the neighbor or the landlord? Thank you. Well, uh, this is Sal Timpano. You you do have those causes of action against the neighbor. Um, but, you know, one concern is going to be, can the neighbor pay for it? Otherwise, you may be pursuing something that you can't collect. Um, whether you have them against the landlord, uh, I don't. For me, I don't have enough facts here. What you said to know that, like, I don't know if the landlord knew about the snake. You know, allowed pets. What kind of snake was it? You know, um, how big was it? Uh, did the landlord ever, you know, have this problem before? I, I just, I don't have enough. There's not enough here for me to, for me anyway, to know whether or not you have a cause of action against the landlord, but you yeah, do the, against the tenant. Yeah, the landlord would need to have some sort of notice that there was a problem with that neighbor unit before they'd be liable. Unless the uh, unless your lease form said no pets, and all the lease form said no pets, and then maybe the landlord. But, you know, the landlord could claim he didn't know that there was a snake there. We'd have to prove that he had reason to know there was a snake there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's a, it sounds like your your wife needs some counseling to help her get through, I mean, what is truly a traumatic situation. I mean, nobody really wants to wake up with to a snake in the bathroom in the middle, middle of the night. Yeah, I mean, for me, even a cute puppy might be a problem because I'm not expecting it. <laughs> You know, I, I don't want to be surprised in my house that way. You know, I just yeah. wouldn't like it. And I, I totally can understand. And, you know, a snake, no less. You know, some people are just deathly afraid of snakes. But any 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 animal in the house, anything, I just I wouldn't you know, it's it's not good. But unfortunately, uh, you know, you I think your defendant might be someone who can't pay for the damages and they don't have insurance for this kind of thing. So. Yeah, could be problematic. Please hang up and try again. They would have insurance for that. 
you know, you brought up an interesting point, and that is, you know, Sal, you said even a puppy would be a problem. I would think that it would be harder to come up with damages from the puppy, maybe someone with severe allergies, but very likely puppies bark, they make noise, they don't like to be left alone. I bet it'd be a whole lot easier to show that the landlord was on notice about the puppy. And that sure. and that begs the question for me. If I'm on a lease that says I can't have any pets, is it fair for me to presume that the landlord is instilling similar conditions on the other tenants? Right. And you don't know and they don't have to. And, you know, that no pet rule is usually usually to benefit the landlord. You know, like we don't want a pet here that's going to mess up my you know, building, even though I'm renting it to the tenant. Yeah, we don't, don't want, want them chewing them. on the drywall or, you know, peeing on the floor. Right. It's not usually there, like, you know, so you don't bother your tenant next door. Not usually. But uh, I would do it. I mean, I would look. I would do what David suggested. I would look and see, you know, I, w- I, w- I would look into that. And uh, but But because the target here is probably someone without insurance, I, I I would probably recommend not pursuing it, you know, but, you know, I, I just, unfortunately, there's a lot of damages that happen to people and there's no money on the other side, so then it doesn't make sense to pursue it. Although I, I do recall that number of years ago, uh, it had to be at least 15, 20 years ago, there was a case in San Francisco where a landlord, I think, had a, a, a verdict against him for a million five for uh, a couple that were husband and wife lawyers who had two vicious dogs, and they attacked some lady coming out of her apartment. Right. And she yeah. got a million and a half dollars. So there was a substantial judgment, but that was San Francisco. I remember that case, David. I do remember that case. And uh, I don't recall if the judgment was against the dog owners. Do you recall that it was against the dog owners? Uh, it was against the dog owners and the landlord, I believe. Yeah. Was that well, on I the think, heels? I think, because, I think because those particular dogs had already bitten somebody before. Could be. Was that and on the heels of that case where the they dogs... They were known to be vicious, yes. Was that yeah. on the heels of the criminal case? To- yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Connie, one of those, the Connie Corso dogs, yeah. One of, those, uh, one of those dog owners is still in prison. They both got significant prison time, mm-hmm. if it's the criminal case. Yeah, the one with the two Connie Corso dogs. Physical yeah. damages there in that case, you know, really physical damages. Um, here, the snake didn't bite anybody. Uh, I didn't hear that it bit anybody. Um, There's still yeah. potentially some, you know, if if... She gets some mental health counseling or something like that. There's some mental health damages there. Yep, I agree. Because I, I, I mean, because because she had to. Yeah, you know, I mean, because she's not going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Yeah, but I, I still don't see a connection to the landlord on the facts that we have so far. And even if I try to like add to them a little bit, I just don't. I'm not seeing it this far right. that there's any connection, you know, to the landlord. Yeah, definitely the neighbor, but the neighbor might not have any kind of, I mean, the thing is, if they can't 
pay the judgment. It's just going to sit there. I mean, they're renewable for 10 years at a time. And if you ever got, you know, a really good job or won the lottery, it might be a different story. But but most people who are judgment proof remain judgment proof. You know, we're running really low. We have about a minute or just over. And I wanted to ask you the one question we never got to tonight that's really the big question. When the pandemic came, we had all both state and all these local ordinances that created eviction moratoriums. And one by one, we've seen them all lifted. And there was this fear that we would have a rush to the courthouse for people that haven't been able to evict for three years. And initially, the word was there wasn't a big, long backlog at the courthouse. The rush to judgment never came. But word on the street is that might be changing, that people are starting to find their way back. Jessica, you're nodding. I was going to ask you, what is the experience you guys are having? Well, it's definitely happening a lot more um, notice as the ends of the eviction moratoria have come up. And the one in San Francisco ended August 29th. There have been a lot more inquiries about notices beforehand, um, notices since. So I think that I think there's much more of that. And certainly in Alameda County, I read an article recently about uh, Hayward uh, Hayward Courthouse Department 511 handles all of the evictions for Alameda County. And that is a lot. I'm seeing more, not the same level as pre-pandemic, but more evictions in San Mateo County. Uh, but there's still some uh, leftover rules, like you can't walk in and file. You have to do everything electronically and you can't uh, walk in to get the judgment and hand the writ to the sheriff like we used to do. It has to be all done uh, through the Internet. And that might make it a little harder to gauge exactly what the neighbors are doing. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area, where we focused on what's new in landlord-tenant law. Our guests tonight have been landlord-tenant attorneys extraordinaire. Jessica Chalik and Salvatore Tempano of San Francisco and David Finkelstein of San Mateo. Our final guest tonight has been all of you. Our show tonight's been produced by yours truly. Please join us again for your legal rights next week, Wednesday at 6 p.m., where, as always, we will take your calls and answer your questions. A big thanks to tonight's guests, Jessica Chalik, David Finkelstein, and Salvatore Tempano. And back home at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden, and remember to know and zealously guard your legal rights. Have a good night. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information.